Good morning. Good morning. On Thursday, Carol and I had uh, dinner with Ken and Tina Moberg, and they uh, send their best greetings to you. Things are uh, going well for Ken. He's at a place where they're calling a pastor at the church that he is uh, a temporary pastor at. But uh, am I turned on? No, I'm not. Now I'm turned on. Okay. There we go. All right. Thank you. So, can Tina miss you? And uh, send their greetings to you. I uh, am not going to ask for any volunteers with these three chairs up here today, so you don't have to worry about that. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Father, uh, your word is good all the time. All the time, Lord, your word is good. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit. Your word has been active and alive. It has been a word that has counseled, encouraged, and admonished every generation that has read it, Lord. And we thank you for it today. Uh, fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit as we hear your word, Lord, that we might be encouraged today as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Finishing well. Faithfulness over time is one of the most difficult tests of Christianity. In 1994, I was on a short-term mission trip in Russia, and it was a Sunday morning, and I was speaking to a congregation of mostly young people and mostly new Christians. There were three pastors who were speaking there, and I was one of them. And as I began my sermon on that morning, I said to those believers, I want you to know that I have been a Christian for over 40 years, and there is no better or more rewarding way to live life than as a Christian. And all of those kids got up and gave me a standing ovation. They wanted to know if Christianity was real, would it last? Can it be counted on? Can Jesus be counted on? I'm going to talk with you today about things we might do as Christians to finish well. And this is not just a sermon for older people, because finishing well talks about a positive conclusion to a total Christian life. You want to be the uh, valedictorian of your high school, you don't decide in your junior year, I'm going to study real hard so that I can make it, do you? You start way back in grade school, working hard, and by the time you get there, you can say to yourself, I'm ready for what I need to do. My sermon today is from the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul was sitting in a prison cell, a Roman prison cell, waiting for the end of his life when he wrote these words. If you have your Bible, you may want to turn with me as we read them. They read as follows. I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The problem is not everyone finishes well. 
some many start, many appear to start well, but are not found at the end. Just a few lines later, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was a young man that Paul mentored, and Demas deserted Paul, never to be heard of again. One of the well-known quotes by that uh, New York Yankee theologian, Yogi Berra, goes like this, it ain't over till it's over. And uh, you know how that is. People can appear to run the race for a long way only to come up short. The enemy never gives up until our last breath is gone. And that means we have to race through the finish line. We have an old track guy with us today and he would tell you that you don't look over your shoulder to see where the guy is you go full speed right through the finish line. And that's how God wants us to run. Now my physical legs aren't that good anymore. I can't beat my grandchildren in races, but my spiritual legs are good for a sprint to the end. And as you know, it's not a matter of legs, but a matter of heart. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. And so we need to, to know who our treasure is. And I'm going to talk to you about four things we can do as believers to help us finish strong and finish well. These are not biblical mandates, but they are things we see evidenced in the lives of people in Scripture who did indeed finish well and are essential parts of our relationship with God through Christ Jesus. And the first one of them is a time, a daily time, focused on communion with God. The two biggest areas involved here are prayer and reading the Word of God. And not as a matter of saying, well, I got my prayer time in today, or I read the Word today. But we need a desire to use those things to draw us closer to our relationship with the Lord. We need to have a plan, because if you don't have a plan, and you try to do them random, randomly, you will never succeed. Demas didn't just wake up one morning and say to himself, well, I guess I'm going to desert Paul today. He slowly fell away as he released the disciplines that Paul taught him as a believer. There's a story about a, a missionary in Africa who converted a, a small tribe to Jesus, and he taught them about daily prayer. And so they would go out into the bush each day. They each found a prayer spot, and they would go out into the bush each day to pray. And after a while, he began to see those who were falling away because their prayer paths were grown over with weeds, whereas the others were tramped down. And he knew who was going to pray and who wasn't going to pray. Job had a plan. Job 1.5 says that early in the morning, Job would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Praying for his children was part of his daily prayer time with the Lord. Carol and I have a dedicated daily prayer time with the Lord, and part of that prayer time is praying for our children and our grandchildren every day. Every day. We pray for each one by name. They now number 20. And uh, <clears throat> it's a joy for us to hold them before the Lord each and every day, knowing that we've put them in His hands. And uh, our oldest, our children run between the ages of 43 and 53, and uh, they'll still call sometimes and say, uh, Dad, I got a big business meeting today. Would you remember me in prayer? Or this is going on with one of our kids, because they know that we will hold them up 
in prayer. Jesus had a plan as well. Mark 1.35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Martin Luther said that he got more done on his knees in the morning than he did the whole rest of the day. If we get in the habit of greeting the Lord in the morning and talking to him about our love for him, our thankfulness for his care in our lives, pray for our needs and ask for his daily direction, we'll begin to see answers on a regular basis, and our relationship will go stronger each day. And it isn't just in the morning. The morning is the place to start. You know, you can't get to 9 o'clock at night and get on your knees and say, Lord, bless my day today, right? <laughs> That's what, an hour, an hour and a half? That's all you got left? No, you want to start in the morning. But, you know, when you do that, what happens is through the course of your life, you begin to realize prayer is important in whatever you do. One of the four careers I had before I'm in the fifth career that I am now was as a vice president of operations for NDS <coughs> Packaging. And on this particular day, uh, the CEO came out on the uh, floor to find me and he said that our biggest customer, owner generator, had called him and said that uh, we were supposed to have sent them a truckload of crating, a semi-load, but it wasn't there. And uh, we had to get it there by the next morning and if we didn't get there by the next morning, there would be big ramifications for us as a company. Now the CEO and I both knew that we couldn't do that. It was impossible, we just couldn't do that. But he said to me, what are you gonna do about that? <laughs> and so I looked at him with a little smile and I said, I'm gonna go to my office, close my door and I'm gonna pray. He was so startled by my answer that he didn't have a comeback. He just walked away from me. And that's what I did. I went to my office and I closed the door and I prayed. Two hours later, the traffic manager from Onan called and said it was our mistake. That trailer got misplaced in our lot and we found it. And so we won't need that trailer of creating by tomorrow morning. And I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Um, in Psalm 27.4, we hear the psalmist declare, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And you know what the psalmist is saying? He said, every day, every day, I want to gather in your temple. And that trans translates to us, every day, Lord, I want to meet you in prayer. When I get out of bed in the morning, the first thing I do is greet the Lord. <clears throat> if my wife is sleeping, I don't give her a kiss. I just let her sleep. I greet the Lord and I say, Father, I want to thank you for the gift of life you've given me in Christ Jesus today, today. The second thing we need to consider is this, daily, the benefits of the gospel in our lives. The benefits of the gospel in our lives. You know, Jesus Christ has saved us and has given us wonderful promises. And the gospel is not something that happened to us a long time ago. It's something that is a current message in each and every one of our lives. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Back in October, I preached a sermon on prayer, and in that sermon, I talked about the importance of praying in Jesus' name. And I said that because we belong to Jesus, he has given us the authority and power of his name. And 
Where is Jesus right now besides being in your heart? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. Is he not interceding for us in prayer? And it's because of the power of the cross that we can come to the heavenly throne room as sons of the Father. It's the gospel that makes that a present reality to us as children of God. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And although justification happens in an instant, it is inseparably connected to our sanctification. It is always the reason for what we do, because we have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. When you uh, join, if you've joined our church as a member, you know that you have an interview with an elder or elders. And one of the questions we ask in that interview is, uh, when were you saved? We talk about the three G's. Grace is the first one. Uh, grace and group and gifts and uh, giving. And the first one is grace. And so we ask, uh, you know, when, tell us about your salvation. And that's really not the right question that we should be asking. The question we should be asking is this. Tell us about the present reality of Jesus Christ in your life. What is that present reality? I don't know how many know uh, the name Bruce Wilkinson. Bruce Wilkinson uh, is a uh, Bible teacher. He has a, a ministry called Walk Through the Bible. And Bruce gave a sermon on the three chairs, the three chairs that I have up here, and talked about uh, the need to pass the baton of the gospel from one generation to the next. And what happens when we don't do that correctly? He based a sermon on a passage in the book of Judges that said Joshua lived faithfully his whole life and served God, and he died knowing God, and he saw the acts of God. Joshua was sitting in the first chair. And then there was a generation of elders that lived after Joshua. They knew about the works of God, and uh, they lived for God. And then there was a third generation, and it says another generation grew up who did not know God and did not know about what God had done for Israel. In the first chair we have King David, a man after God's own heart. And you know, David had a problem of being a father, didn't he? He had a problem being a father. It says in the book of Samuel that David could never say no to his sons. He could never say no to his sons who was sitting right here, Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. That's, that's what a little guy said in Sunday school when the teacher asked him how many wives did he have. He said he had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. He had 300 concubines. 700 wives and 300 concubines. And, and Solomon allowed idol worship to come back into the children of Israel. And here is his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam does not know God and does not follow God. He's completely gone. Three generations we have lost the word of God because we have not passed the gospel on. So we have a man sitting in the second chair and we ask him to give his testimony in church. He gets up and he says this. When I was a ninth grader, I went to Camp Forest Springs. And one night around the campfire, I heard the message of the gospel. 
and I gave my life to Jesus. And it's one of the greatest memories that I have. Okay, now we ask the man in the first chair to give his testimony. He gets up and he says, yesterday morning when I was reading my devotion, God spoke to me and this is what he said. You hear the difference? When I was in ninth grade, yesterday, yesterday, the message of the gospel, the reality of the gospel has to be so strong in our lives that we are willing and able to pass it on to our children. So our children all sit in the first chair. So they don't move from the first chair to the second chair, but they sit in the first chair. Number one, daily communion with God. Number two, a daily reality of the gospel in our lives. Number three comes from Romans 12.1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We need to make a regular commitment of ourselves to the Lord as his servants. Paul is most likely here talking about the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was the offering for sin. And they put that on the altar and it was completely consumed. There was nothing left. When they were done, it was totally consumed. There were offerings where they allowed the priest to take part of the animal as, a, uh, as an offering to them. But with the burnt offering, it was totally consumed. This offering was done twice a day. And uh, so it was also called the continual offering. <clears throat> Paul is not talking about just our bodies, but who we are and what we have. You'll remember in Acts 4.32 where it says of the New Testament believers, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Do we still need to talk like that today? We say that everything we have comes from God. Do we really believe that everything we have comes from God. You know, when you become a believer, your soul goes from darkness into light. <clears throat> what about your stuff? Does your stuff go from darkness into light as well? Do you know where your stuff is when you're a believer? When you become a believer, your stuff is still back here in the dark. You know how your stuff gets over here? gets over here when you sit down before God and you say, I acknowledge that you have given me everything that I have and that you own it all, Lord, and I want to worship you by giving you part of what I have and part of what my stuff is. We make a declaration, and when we do, the Lord will give us the opportunity to demonstrate that we believe that. The Lord got a hold of Carol and I in our early 30s. We were Christians before that, but we were operating on a very limited knowledge of God. And at that time, the Lord exposed us to teaching on the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, when he did, it caused a paradigm shift in our life. And part of that paradigm shift was a realization that all that we own belonged to the Lord, that he wanted our time, our talents, and our treasures. Not just a little bit of our time, but all of it. Well, it wasn't too long after that, about maybe three or four months in, uh, 
we bought a conversion van. It was a used van, it wasn't a new van, but it was the best vehicle that we had ever owned. And when we drove the vehicle home, we parked in the driveway and Carol and I got out and we put our hands in that van together and we said, Lord, thank you for giving us this van and we want to dedicate it to you because you've given it to us. Two weeks later, before we had driven that van out of the driveway, a brother and sister came to us and said, could we take that van on vacation? Could we take that van on vacation? Well, it was uh, <laughs> with a, a wistful smile on my face that I waved goodbye a couple days later as the two of them got in our van and drove it out of the driveway. All of us belongs to God. There was a point in our life when a brother came to our door at night and he said to us, he was involved in a very messy divorce, and he said to us, um, the judge told me that if I don't have a place for myself and my four children to stay by tomorrow, he'll take them away from me. He didn't ask if he could stay at our house, did he? But the message was loud and clear, wasn't it? And so we had room, and we turned our basement into a dormitory. And they spent the next two months with us. It was not an easy time. We had rules, and they didn't. <laughs> and uh, my wife would make supper, and they didn't show up. They ate it cold. But you know, it was the love of God that enabled us to, to give what we had and to dedicate what we had to him. And we have to realize that to finish strong, God, God owns it all. You know, we get older and we worry about our 401ks and, and our social security and what's going to go on. Uh, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, uh, you know, the Lord's Prayer, there are six petitions. The first three belong to God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And then what do we pray? Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Daily bread. Are we thankful for daily bread? Do we see that God gives us daily bread? Do we realize that? We are in a place, in a country where um, we hardly have to think about that. Carol and I, uh, last uh, year, were in Haiti for a, con for a, uh, a conference with 200 pastors. And... Uh, Pastor Whitney, who was our uh, the Haitian that missionary from Highland, and we I worked through him, through with me and with with me and with me translates for me when we uh, go down there. And he said to me, "If we don't feed them, they won't listen to us because Haitians don't get any food and they'll be hungry all the time. And we'll speak to them, but they won't listen to us." And so Highland generously donated four thousand meals for those three days that we were down there. And they, uh, they didn't get a bowl of cereal and a piece of toast for breakfast. <laughs> they had plates full of, of rice and uh, stuff that was on it. And uh, they uh, ate, and I mean they ate. And after the first day, Whitney said to me, they got more food today than they normally will eat in five days. And they paid attention. And you know, they brought their plates back and they ate on glass plates. They had to eat in their chairs, just like you are here, because we had no room in the hall to do anything else. And they uh, brought them back with nothing on them. I mean, nothing. 200 plates, 
and there wasn't enough uh, garbage to fill a two-quart pail uh, from what they ate. And so we need to understand, one, daily communion with God, two, the reality of the gospel in our lives, three, that God wants our time, talents, and treasures. Number four is the hardest of all. The final thing we need to have to finish well is a firm belief in the sovereignty and the love of God. In his book, The Road Less Traveled, M. Scott Peck begins with a three-word sentence, life is difficult. Jesus said this in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but he adds this great encouragement, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There will always be difficult things in our lives that we cannot understand or explain, but if we believe in both the love and sovereignty of God, we'll be able to navigate through them without damage. And what do I mean by the sovereignty of God? I mean that ultimately God has control and power over all things. He has created everything and sustains it by the power of his word. However, the Lord has chosen at times for reasons we cannot know or understand to express his sovereignty in ways that do not make sense to our human reason. As a result, we sometimes become responsible for the consequences of a sinful, depraved world that chooses to cause situations of calamity, disaster, war, and destruction that affect believer and unbeliever alike. At those times, it's hard to understand. At the same time, they, it gives us as Christians opportunities to demonstrate the love of God to others and to witness the truths of Scripture to an unbelieving world. If we were going to pick an example out of Scripture of a person who believed in the love and sovereignty of God, we would certainly hit upon Joseph. You know the story well. Joseph was deserted by his brothers, sold as a slave, betrayed by his master's seducing wife, spent three years in prison. And in one single day, he went from prison to being the second highest ruler in the world in a single day. In Genesis 45, 8, Joseph acknowledges the sovereignty of God when he says to his brothers, so then it wasn't you who brought me here, but God. He was telling them that he understood, despite the hardship that he went through, the difficulty that he went through, sitting in prison, wondering where his life would go. It was God that did it. In Genesis 50, 20, he acknowledges the love of God working through it all when he says to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good by what is now being done in the saving of many lives. So he understood that God brought his family there, that God might preserve them through five more years of famine and save them at a time of difficulty and grow them into a mighty nation that we knew as the children of Israel. Some of the pain and much of the pain in our lives has been caused by others. We have prodigal children, financial difficulty through others' decisions, rejection in relationship by others, plans that never come to fruition through no direct fault of our own, the loss of loved ones prematurely. The prophet Isaiah tells us that God's ways are higher than ours, yet we struggle to understand things for which we will never have the answers. We need to take hold of the word of God and trust that his love is greater 
that his mercy is deeper and the hope he gives us is higher than any calamity that can befall us. The Lord has not only forgiven our sins, but has given us the ability to forgive those who have hurt us as well. The sovereignty of God and the love of God. I am going to tell you, I'm actually going to read you a story about a father and a daughter who demonstrated both of those situations. Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svea Flood went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa. To what was then called the Belgian Congo, they met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericsons, and the four of them sought God for direction in those days of much tenderness and devotion. And they decided, the four of them, that they would leave the mission station they were at and go into the jungle to seek to convert a tribe to Jesus. A huge step of faith. At the village of Noldera, they were rebuffed by the chief who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go a half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough but didn't get any. The chief allowed one little boy to visit them twice a week and sell them eggs and um, milk. And um, Svea Flood, who was only four feet eight inches tall, very tiny woman, decided if there was only one person she could speak the gospel to, she'd speak to that little boy, and she converted him to Christianity. But there were no other encouragements. They suffered malaria and other diseases. Then of all things, Svea found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born named Ianna, but the delivery was exhausting. She had suffered a couple of bouts of malaria, and Svea Flood lived only 17 days after her baby was born. Inside David Flood, something snapped in that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife. I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both Ericsons had died as well. And they gave the little baby to an American couple, and they renamed her Aggie and they took her to the United States. They were afraid that if they stayed in Africa, she would be taken away from them. So they brought her back to this country, and her foster dad had a ministry uh, <clears throat> here in this country, and Aggie ended up going to Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota. There she met a man named Dewey Hurst, and they married, had a successful ministry, and moved to Seattle, where he became the head of a college. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden a photo stopped her. There was a primitive setting with a grave in a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Svea Flood. She jumped in her car and went to a, a professor who could uh, translate for her. And he translated the story, and this is what it said. It was about missionaries that had come to Noldera long ago. 
the birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all the students to Christ, the children led their parents to Christ, even the chief became a Christian. Today there were 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of David and Sophia Flood. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with a gift of a vacation to Sweden, and Aggie decided to try and find her real father. An old man now, David Flood, had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God, because God has taken everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now, but you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached a 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively, he began to cry. I Anna, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of us. The man instantly stiffened and the tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a story to tell you. <coughs> it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you went to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He never hated you. The old man turned back to his daughter with a sad look in his eyes. His body relaxed and he began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed a warm moments together. Aggie and her husband <clears throat> soon returned to America, and within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, the Hearst attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, where a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the National Church, representing 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going forward to ask afterward if he'd ever heard of David and Svea Flood. Yes, madam, he replied, it was Svea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born the love and sovereignty of God. David Flood could not accept the sovereignty of God, and he suffered all those years. God graciously gave him a daughter to bring him back, but he had a daughter who loved God and accepted the sovereignty of God. You and I will struggle the same way. We all have issues in our life, and some of them will never be answered. We'll go into eternity never getting those answers. But if we trust the love and sovereignty of God, 
We will not suffer in our lives. We will not be bitter. We will not have anger in our hearts. We will not leave behind a bitter taste for others to follow us. Communion with God on a daily basis. A daily realization that your salvation is an everyday act of force in your life. Giving your body as a living sacrifice to God. Believing in the sovereignty and the love of God. Praise the Lord. My prayer for each and every one of you is that you will finish strong. That you will finish strong. That you will sprint through the finish line into the arms of Jesus. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, there is no God like you. There is no one like you. You love us with an everlasting love. And Lord, we want to serve you. We want to serve you through thick and thin, good and bad. Difficult times, Lord. You have given us your son. You have given us your love. You've given us, Lord, faith to trust you in all things. Lord, we just bless you for your word. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.